Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Let me open with this. Henrietta Green, you perhaps have not heard of her. Henrietta Green, her nickname was Hetty. She lived from 1834 until 1916. And she was nicknamed the Witch of Wall Street. Hmm. She was an American businesswoman and a financier known as the richest woman in America. Known for her wealth, but also for her miserliness. She was the lone woman to amass a fortune when all other financiers were men. Hetty Green's stinginess was legendary, and she had gone down in history (laughs) as America's greatest miser. In 1916, the year that she had died, Hetty left an estate valued at over $100 million. That was back in 1916. I haven't done a net present value on my little financial calculator. I should have done that. But if you do that, let me know. It's worth a lot more than $100 million today, probably into the billions. She was said never to turn on the heat or to use hot water. She wore one old black dress and undergarments that she changed only after they had been worn out. She did not wash her hands and she rode in an old carriage. One tale claims that Hetty spent half a night searching in her carriage for a lost stamp worth two cents. Another story declares that she instructed her laundress to wash only the dirtiest parts of her dresses in order to save money. She ate cold oatmeal because it would cost to heat it up. Her son had to suffer a leg amputation because she delayed so long in looking for a free clinic that his case became incurable. She was wealthy, yet she chose to live like she was poor. That's a story that many of us live like spiritually. We are so rich and we live like Hetty, and we make crazy decisions, and we do crazy things, because we don't understand the depths and the riches that we have because of what God has done for us. In the opening of Ephesians, Paul brilliantly, brilliantly, after his greeting in verses 1 and 2, he brilliantly overwhelms us with idea after idea and truth after truth, encouragement after encouragement to make sure that we fully understand the depths of God's love for us and the extent of the riches that are found in Him when we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ, His Son. Can I get an amen? In fact, in fact, in the Greek text, After the greeting in Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2 is the greeting. In the Greek text, verses 3 all the way to 14 is actually one sentence. It's considered by some to be the most weighty or bulky or cumbersome sentence in the entire Greek language. And I think that Paul did that for a reason. For us to get the overwhelming sense of how much our God loves us. Weighty. We're going to do four takeaways in our text. So on these 14 verses, we're going to take away four things. You can write them down now, but they'll also pop up one at a time. Here are the four things. We're going to look at the resource. Who gives us these riches? It's our God. 
God is the resource of our riches. And then we're going to look at the rationale. Why? Why has God enriched us? Why has He opened up His riches to us? Because He loves us. He delights in us. He takes pleasure in us. Did you know that? God loves us. And then, well, what do I have to do to obtain those riches? I appreciate that He's the resource and that He loves me, but what do I have to do? What do I have to do in order to have those riches, the riches that are found in Him? And then once I do that, then how does my life respond to that reality? How do I live a life of response in order to show my God how much I appreciate what He's done for me? Let's pray. Lord, we humbly quiet our hearts and our minds before You because You've You've spoken to us. And so may we be quiet so we can hear from You through this letter that You wrote to us through Paul to the church at Ephesus, this timeless letter. May we quiet ourselves to hear from You. Oh God, do what You desire to do with each and every one of us individually and do what You desire to do with us as Your church. Have your way with us because your way is good. It's pure. And we trust you with it. And it's in Jesus' name we all prayed and everyone said. So the first takeaway that we're going to look at is the, the resource of our riches. Let's turn to Ephesians 1 if you haven't already done so. The resource of our riches. And so Paul introduces himself in verse 1. Paul, an apostle by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus. So here's the research. first one. We're going to look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace. Grace from God our Father and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God and from Christ. We read words like that and we, we tend to just gloss over them. But God has blessed us with His grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then His Son has blessed us with His peace through the Holy Spirit. Because we just covered that in Galatians a few months back, that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. So God's grace is extended to us through Christ. And then His peace is extended to us through the Holy Spirit. Listen. (laughs) The Lord, this peace that is given to us, Philippians 4, verse 7. What does it say about this peace? It says that He has given us a a peace that surpasses all comprehension. This peace passes all comprehension. We, of all people, must be. We are people of peace. We must be experiencing the peace. If we've given our lives to Jesus Christ, He has poured out His peace upon us. We, of all people, should be living with peace. If somebody says to you, Dustin, please describe to me the peace that you have in Christ, Dustin should say, I can't, because it is beyond all comprehension, is what Philippians 4 says. It surpasses my comprehension. I don't even know if I can describe it to you. Oh, I I want that. We, of all people, if we're not living in the grace and peace that God has provided to us, we need to recalibrate something in our lives. Amen? It's a peace which surpasses our wildest comprehension. Let's look at verse 3. 
Blessed be who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Because He's blessed us with some, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me say that again. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's a cartoon of a lawyer reading a client's last will and testament to some greedy relatives. And it says, I, Sam Jones, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. Our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is not Sam Jones. He did the opposite. He says, I, Jesus Christ, of sound mind and body, I give you everything. Everything. I hold nothing back. Mm. Thank you, Lord. And I believe sometimes we don't bless. And that's what it says here. Blessed be the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with everything, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I think sometimes we don't bless our Lord because we want to be blessed with every earthly blessing. And so we wonder what's wrong. And he says, you went to the wrong bank bank to make a withdrawal. You went to the earthly bank. I want you to go to the heavenly bank. Because that's where I bless you with every earthly or every heavenly blessing. With everything. Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 says that He, he He chooses us, you guys. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us. It just reminds me of growing up and being in stinking school and people choosing teams and nobody wanted to be chosen last. What a horrible, hideous process that is, right? I pick so-and-so and and I pick so-and-so and you're standing there. It's terrible. And it's like this verse says... God says, oh, gee, okay, Jesus, you go first. You pick. He says, I pick them all first. I pick all of them first. And I'm willing to die for that, to make that happen. He chooses us. He chooses us. It's a choice He made. He didn't have to do that. He chose us. And I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, not a day goes by without the concept of being chosen, having a deep impact on somebody's life all around the world. It's important. We all, all of us, want or need to be known, to be loved, to be cared for, to be chosen. He chooses us. What more could we ask for? Look at verses 5 and 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, in Christ. Sorry, I missed verse 5, didn't I? My bad. He predestined us. He did that. He predestined us to adopt us through Christ according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us. In other words, He carved out a pathway whereby He can adopt every one of us. He found a way where He can adopt each and every one of us. That's what it says. I'm sure most of us have heard of the challenges that people go through in the process of adopting. It's not easy, is it? I've never talked to anybody who's 
gone through an adoption or who has, has a relative who's gone through an adoption where, where it's been easy. It's no different for our Lord, is it? It's no different for our Lord. God sent His own Son to die for us the worst and most humiliating kind of death so that He can adopt us. Oh, all of us. Because He chooses all of us. And so He's willing to go through the adoption process on our behalf. Lord, we thank You. Look at verses 7 and 8. In Him, right? Again, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. My wife will tell you this is true. When we were first married, you couldn't, you couldn't give me anything. I, just, I didn't do well with that. I don't know why. You just couldn't give me anything. I didn't receive well. I'm, I'm a changed man. You can give me as you can lavish me, and I will receive all of it. I got lavished last night with three giant-sized Hershey's with almond bars, and I received it gladly and said, "Lord bless you." You can lavish upon me. I've learned how to receive that God wants us to receive the lavishness that He wants for us. God redeemed us. He chose us. He adopted us. To redeem us means there was a price that needed to be paid. There was a price on our head, if you will. A bounty our heads, on our heads due to our sin against God. And the wages of sin is death. And so Christ paid that price on our behalf. His blood for our blood. Look at verses 9 and 10. He makes known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Before we gave our lives to Christ, Scripture even says that the Word of God was foolishness to those of us who are perishing, but to those of us who have put our hope and faith and trust in Christ, it's the power of God. And so he begins to reveal himself to us through his word. He, he pulls back the curtain and he gives us insight into who he is and how he works. He reveals not only what Christ does for us on the cross, but who Christ is and how all of history points to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ, both his first coming and then, of course, his second coming, which is in the future. He lets us in on that. Look at verses 11 and 12. We we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. <laughs> We've obtained an inheritance. So let's go in order of what we, already, what we already covered. So He chooses us. He says, I choose you. You're with me. And, and then He says, but not only am I choosing you, I'm going to adopt you as my own son and daughter. Not only that, I'm going to pay that price that was on your head for the sin that you had. And then not only that, I'm going to allow you to share in the inheritance of mine. Wow. He chooses us. He adopts us. He pays the price by redeeming us. And then he lets us share in his inheritance, the wealth of the King of Kings and the wealth of the Lord of Lords. Look at verses 13 and 14. In him you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel, having also believed you were sealed with Him in the Holy Spirit of promise. Hmm. 
So the Lord, after doing all this, after choosing us, after adopting us, after redeeming us, after giving us inheritance, He seals the deal. No turning back, baby. You are mine and I am yours. And so He secures our, our present and our future. He secures our present and our future. The Holy Spirit is a sign or a seal that we are indeed children of God. And we are promised this by putting our faith and trust in Christ, whether we're Jew or whether we're Gentile. In the seal, it speaks of a finished transaction. It implies ownership. It implies security. It implies protection. And so presently, the Holy Spirit empowers us and comforts us and guides us and helps us and teaches us and many more things. But the Holy Spirit, verse 14 says, is also given to us as a pledge. That's what verse 14, who is given as a pledge. And pledge means earnest, like earnest money in a real estate transaction for a future reality. It's a down payment to guarantee the final purchase. So our hope is secure in, through the seal of the Holy Spirit, both presently and we are eternally secure. That's pretty cool. Our second takeaway. That was, the first takeaway was what? The resources of our riches, right? Or the resource of our riches. The second takeaway is the rationale. Why? What's the reason? What's the rationale for these riches poured out on my life? Look at verse 4. Just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before a holy God in love. That's why He did it. God loves us. Is that good news to us? It's best news ever. That's why the gospel means good news. Our God loves us. But look at also... I'm sorry, let me, let me, let me cover this first. Love is not simply an emotion towards an object. Love is not simply an emotion towards an object. It's a devotion towards an object. God just doesn't have an emotion towards us. He has a devotion towards us. Love is seen in actions and deeds. Amen? It's not just an emotion. It's a devotion towards that object. Let's also look. So He loves us. Look at verses 5 and 9. Verse 5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ according to the kind intention of His will. Mm. Verse 9 is similar. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention. So He loves us, and He has a kind intention towards us. The kind intention of His will means the good pleasure of His will. The kind intention of God's will is it brings Him pleasure. It's His good pleasure. So God... Not only does He love us, He pours out all those things that we just read from verses 3 through 14. He pours that out upon us because He delights in us, because He takes good pleasure in us. He doesn't just love us, He delights in us. And so when we sometimes trip up or we, we stumble and we're not really proud of how we're living life, we tend to run from Him and He says, No, run to me. Run to me because I have all the resources you need and I delight in coming alongside of you. I delight in doing everything I just read, that we just read about in verses 3 through 14. I want to do that for you. Don't run from me. Run to me. It's a delight for me. It's my good pleasure to do these things for you. We're in this together. 
And so many times we misunderstand that character of God, that He's displeased with us or that He's angry with us. No! He takes pleasure in us when we partner with Him and when we turn to Him and all of our faults and all of our failures. It's His good pleasure. He loves us. May we turn to Him. It makes sense to me that it would bring delight and pleasure to our Lord as it would to any loving parent to provide for our children, to sacrifice for our children, to provide direction and resources for our children. So it makes sense that it would be the same for our Lord. Amen? Our third takeaway, the requirement of our riches. What is required? How do I tap into the riches of the Almighty God? Turn to Acts chapter 16. Turn to Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at this little story about Paul and Silas being imprisoned. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 22. So a crowd rose up together against Paul and Silas and those that were with them. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, the jailer, having received such a command, took no chances. He threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. There's really no way out. But about midnight, I love but, right? But, but God. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Imagine. And the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke, imagine his despair. He saw the prison doors open and so he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that all these prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself. We're all here. And he called for the lights and and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he falls down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He saw the riches of an Almighty God and said, What must I do to get some of those riches? It's a great question, isn't it? What must I do then? If He's the resources of our riches and he, and, he, and, he, and he blesses us with riches because He loves us and He takes delight in us, what do I have to do? It's such a great question. What must I do to be saved? What's required of me? If the Lord has showered us in riches because of His love and because of the good pleasure of His will, is there anything on our part that we must do to be saved? Let's go back to our text. Let's look at verses 3, 4, and 5, and then we're going to look at verse 11 in Ephesians 1. 3, 4, and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. So far, it looks like we don't have to do anything. Let's read verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. In that verse, it looks like we don't have to do anything. These verses, and there's, and there's others, trust me, there's many others, point us to a rather uh, fun, <laughs> complex, and oftentimes very divisive subject matter, and it's the subject matter or the topic of election. Election is the idea that God, in eternity past, chose those who will be saved and then chose those who would not be saved. Huh. That's what election teaches. Election stresses that salvation is entirely the work of God. Suffice it to say that we don't have the time to tackle this rather large topic of conversation, but I do want to touch on it briefly. Some perspectives worth looking at. One of my favorite commentators is Warren Wiersbe, and I'm going to put a quote of his up here. He says, Does the sinner then respond to God's grace against his will? No. He responds because God's grace makes him willing to respond. That when God pours out upon us, it creates in us a desire to respond, a willingness to respond. The mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility will never be solved in this life. Both are taught in the Bible, and he references John 6.37, which I'll show you in a second. Both are true, and both are essential. I want to show you one verse that's similar to what this talks about, Romans 2.4. We know this verse, but think about this. Do you think lightly, and here we see his riches again, of the riches of God's kindness, of God's tolerance, of God's patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Amen? Here's that verse from John 6.37. MacArthur references it as well, which we're going to look at that in a second. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me, they'll come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So whether God gives them to me, or whether we go to Him, we're His. John MacArthur says this about this topic of election, if you will. He says, The Bible affirms human responsibility right alongside the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Moreover, the offer of mercy in the gospel is extended to everyone. Isaiah and Revelation call whosoever will to be saved. Isaiah and Acts command all men to turn to God, to repent and be saved. 1 Timothy and 2 Peter tell us that God is not willing that any should perish, but desires that all should be saved. Finally, the Lord Jesus said that. And we already read that verse, the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Okay. Let's go back to Acts chapter 16, up to that jailer. Because he asked a pretty important question. What must I do to be saved? I left you hanging. Let's go back to Acts chapter 16. So in verse 30, after he brought them out, the jailer says to Paul and Silas, What must I do to be saved? And they said what? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's pretty simple. God extended His kindness, extended His grace to that jailer. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved to have some of those riches? And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So now let's go back to Ephesians 1. Let's go back to Ephesians 1. 
Remember, I mentioned earlier that from verse 3 to verse 14 is all what? One sentence. So when God does all these things in the early part, how does He wrap it up? When He does this for us and does that for us and He chooses us and predestines us, how does He wrap it up in verses 13 and 14? In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Yes, I'm going to do all this. I'm going to pour out my grace upon you. I'm going to pour out my riches upon you. And then you put your belief in Christ. And when you do, you'll be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Hmm. Our fourth and last takeaway is how do we respond to these riches? How do we respond now to these riches? He's the resource of our riches. He pours it out to us because He loves us and He takes good pleasure in us. Uh, the requirement is that we put our faith and belief and trust in Jesus Christ. And then how, now how do we live a life of response accordingly? I don't know about you, but for me, what a joy it would be to spend hour after hour after hour after hour discovering and understanding the depths of our Lord's love and our Lord's generosity, the riches that are found in Him. We can spend an eternity doing that. And we sometimes refer to all of what God does for us as his, uh, Him extending His grace to us or His graces to us, plural. And so what's interesting about verses 3 through 14 is we see His grace extended through God, we see His grace extended through Christ, and we see His grace extended through the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, verses 3 through 6... This is the heading. I don't have it on the screen. I should have done it. I just didn't do it. Verses 3 through 6, His grace is found in the, they're all S words, the selection of the Father. His grace can be seen in verses 3 through 6 as the selection of the Father. He chooses us. He selects us. And He adopts us. And He calls us His own. Verses 7 through 12 is about the sacrifice of the Son. So we see God's grace extended to us by the sacrifice of the Son. So we have the selection of the Father, and so He sends the Son to sacrifice for us. So selection of the Father, verses 3 through 6, verses 7 through 12 is the sacrifice of the Son. And then verses 13 and 14 is the seal of the Holy Spirit. He extends His grace by sealing us with the Holy Spirit. Is that amazing? We see God's grace extended to us through the Father, through the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. The selection of the Father the sacrifice of the Son, and the seal of the Holy Spirit. Praise be to our God. So I gave you those three breakdowns. 3 through 6, the last verse is 6. 7 through 12, the last verse is 12. 13 and 14, the last verse is 14. Let's see how each of those sections ends. Look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace. We are to praise Him and bring Him glory. We are to praise Him for His glory. The next section ended in verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. And now look at the grace in the Holy Spirit. At the end of 14, or let's all of 14, who was given as a pledge the Holy Spirit of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Our response is one of praise. Our response is one that brings glory to our God because of what He's done 
as a Father, as a Son, and as the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity. Our lives are to be lives of praise, to bring Him glory. So let me ask you, how, how much of our lives are lived for His glory? How much? How much of our lives are lived for His glory? It's a tough question, right? You put a percentage on it? Two parts out of five? Most? I'm not sure. Nobody's ever asked me that. How much of our lives are lived for His glory? For His glory, and not our own. A life of praise. A life of praise. That's what all those three verses says, that we should have a life of praise. It's one that understands the resource of our riches. They all come from Him. It's a life that understands the rationale of our riches, that He loves us and takes delight in us and finds good pleasure in us. A life of praise is one that responds appropriately. A life of praise is one that responds appropriately. And so we gather as a church and we gather in in home groups so that we continue to respond appropriately and learn how to respond appropriately as we go through His Word and as we pray and as iron sharpens iron so that we can live a life of praise to respond appropriately to the riches that He's poured out on us. (laughs) Do we really, do we really understand and praise our Lord for His grace. Do we really? That's what this whole, these whole first 14 verses are. This tri- Paul's trining overwhelms us so that we have a deeper sense of His grace. And so do we really understand and praise our Lord for His grace? Do we really? And do we experience being rich because of it? Is your life rich? Is your life rich spiritually? Is your life rich spiritually? Or do you live like Hetty Green, who's got all this wealth at her disposal? We have all this wealth at our disposal. How do we live? Do we live like we're in spiritual poverty? Or do we live like we are spiritually rich? It's a great question for us. I'm going to close with this story. Does anybody know the name Bruce Wilkinson? He wrote a book that was wildly popular a few years back called what? You remember? The Prayer of Jabez. Bruce Wilkinson, the author of The Prayer of Jabez, was meeting with a leader of a growing ministry. And so this leader, this ministry leader, hoped to talk with Bruce and glean some principles from him that would help grow that ministry. After answering many of the leader's questions, Bruce asked him if he might uh, ask a question of his own. So he says, how many, how many donors do you have for your ministry? The leader grew silent as he started calculating how many donors the ministry might have. After a few seconds, Bruce said, I, it sure has taken you a long time. The leader apologized and assured Bruce that he wanted to give him as accurate of a count as possible. I'm not sure. I just need a minute to think about it. And Bruce halted him in the middle of his calculations. He said, the mere fact that it's taking you this long means that you're not approaching this right. 
the leader looked a bit puzzled. What do you mean? And Bruce said, well, you only have one donor. Now that one, God, may work through many, but the only donor that matters is Him. The many just give the ministry what the one has given to them. Your donors aren't your true source. God is. What a great story. We're rich, church. We're so rich. I hope and pray we're not living like Hetty Green, spiritually speaking. That we're living in the riches that are promised to us. And that's why we value this so much. Because those riches are found in here. And so we spend time focusing on the riches that are found in His Holy Word. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us in a time of worship. And when I'm done praying, we're going to do a song. And then when the song's over, if you need prayer, our prayer team, as always, is available here in the corner. Please see them for prayer. Please tap into the riches that our God has for you. Prayer is part of the riches that we have in Christ. Pray. Get the prayer that you need if you need prayer for anything big or small. Nothing's too small and nothing's too big for our Lord. Let me pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We recognize how rich we are in you. And for that, we give you thanks and praise that's due your name. Lord, may we understand the depths of your riches toward us more so today than we ever have before. Thank you, Lord, that you delight in us, that you take pleasure in us, that you love us. We're so grateful. It's in your mighty and holy name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.